You are listening to a message by Travis Scott from our gatherings at Shorebreak. Visit shorebreakchurch.com to get connected with more content. And if you would like to support the gospel being preached in Kona and to thousands online, your tax-deductible donation enables us to further Jesus' mission. Partner with us by giving at shorebreakchurch.com backslash give. Mahalo. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning, if you guys can make your way to the eighth book of the Old Testament. There is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. And we are uh, just starting this, this series really last week, but today is the first week we get into that. But before we do, I uh, just wanted to welcome you, say aloha. We're so uh, privileged to have you spending your Sunday morning with us. It's an honor that, that you're here. Uh, Hurricane Anna didn't get us. What was that about, right? Now I'm going to go there, uh, a little over it already, all these hurricane things that they say are going to be the apocalypse, but they're not. Um, all that to say, though, we are uh, blessed to have you here. My name is Travis And it's my honor and privilege to share from the Word of God with you uh, this morning. And if you are new, visiting, wondering, uh, looking for a place to put your roots in down for a church, we would pray that that you would consider this church to be your your home, your your fellowship. Um, We are a church that is all about Jesus and all about His glory and, and really not about ourselves. And so... Um, uh, we would invite you to be a part of that. We are in a study through Ruth, and Ruth is really about a remnant. It is about a remnant of God sustaining sovereignty towards his remnant people. Remnant is God's power being manifested and revealed and God's powerless people. Even people who actually... Some would say aren't part of God's people. We'll unpack that more later. The remnant is about the illumination of redemption towards hopeless outsiders, towards those who do not deserve it, towards those who want nothing to do with God, who have lived in absolute rebellion against him, who are completely least deserving, but that God would set his eye upon undeserved people. The Remnant. Of all short stories ever written in history, none are more incredible, or none can even get close to, can get near to the wonderful plot that unfolds here in Ruth. This story, as hopefully you've read ahead and you will read ahead, is brutally explicit and honest about suffering, about death, about pain, about what would seem to be chance and luck, what we're going to really talk about today, and of course, redemption. See, Ruth unfolds during a time when the judges ruled. It's never a good time when you live during the time of the judges, right? Judges are ruling because everyone, everyone in Israel has rebelled against God and they are doing what is right in their own eyes. They are living for their own glory. They are living for their own sinful, wicked pleasure. But it looks right to them. It makes sense to them. And you can always justify what you want to do in your own eyes because our heart and, and the desires of which flow from our heart are wicked and perverted. So of course in our eyes what we're doing is right and makes sense. And so as we come to Ruth, this is the landscape. People are in rebellion. God had warned his covenant people that if they do not obey and follow him, there would be heavy suffering and consequences to come. But the nation of Israel continued to do what was right in their own eyes. They continued. In fact, that's what Judges is. It is about the seven cycles of, of Israel's rebellion. They would, they would do what was right in their own eyes, and they, they would realize, oh, wow, we don't get the privileges of 
being God's covenant people when we rebel against him. So they repented and said, oh, we're sorry, but we're not really, I should I, I use repent loosely. But they repented, said, oh God, we're sorry, we, we should have done that. But then they go right back to that very thing they would do. They would do what was right in their own eyes. And they would say, oh, but God, we're sorry. And they'd go back to, oh, but God, we're sorry. Seven times did the nation of Israel do this. Seven times were they in rebellion and then in what would seem to be repentance. The rebellion ran so deep that even the pastors have gone wild. Like, you know culture is bad when the pastors lose their minds. The priests, right? They are doing what is right in their own eyes. They are not standing for the truth. They are compromising. They are really going with the cultural flow of where everyone else is going. It's the time of the remnant time when everyone seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. But notice that in the days of the judges, if that's not bad enough, we read in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. At what point are you like, man, these people have got it rough. There is wickedness, rebellion, everyone is living for hell, and yet there's no food even. There's, no, there's a famine. In the land. It was so bad that God, some of God's people, a few of God's people, went to other places to find refuge. And you have to wonder here, you have to wonder in reading this, can this get any worse? Can it get worse? Is this it? Or can we get lower? Can the dark scenes be any darker? Before the sun rises, there is darkness. There has to be. And if you're going to have good news, good news needs to invade bad news. Good news needs to make an appearance in times of desperation or else it's not good news. And so this is where we are in Ruth. We aren't at the sunrise yet. There is only bad news to be seen. Bad news seemingly getting worse and worse. So let's all stand right now for the reading of God's holy scriptures. Ruth chapter 1 beginning with verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon. And Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. O oh, gracious, mighty, sovereign God, we come to you this morning as broken creatures. experiencing the effects of this fallen world, doing what is right in our own eyes, living in rebellion against your holy and perfect law, in desperate need of redemption, we come at your feet of the word this morning. Speak to us. Reshape the ways we think 
wrongly about your character and about your nature and about the way you rule this world, the way you hold the cosmos together. And may we think rightly about you, God, and and, and so through Ruth, would you shape and reshape and reform and for those of us who don't know you, re- a new birth, a rebirth of the things and a desire for you. May we have the appetite to taste and see you and desire you. And so God, would you help me to be faithful to what you've said in the scriptures, to never back away or hold back from the truth, And would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give us, show us our depravity, your glory, our need, and your redemption by Jesus through his blood, the power of the Holy Spirit, for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, God. Amen. Please be seated. Between the time when Joshua would lead God's people into the promised land and when Israel would anoint the first king, Saul, through the prophet Samuel, we have between the ushering in of God's people and the promised land and King Saul's anointing, two books wedged between them, Judges and, of course, Ruth. God had appointed judges in the midst of the rebellion. And as if verse 1 alone, if we read in the days when the judges ruled, and even going back and reading in Judges 25, 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The hard edge of this story digs deep into our soul. There is death, and there is death, and there is death. Reading the story, it's very black and white. No emotion injected or penned into any of these verses leaving the reader to try to navigate the wake of suffering that is left behind for us to interpret and try to make sense of. And if you notice what makes this time when you read these these five verses and that the pain that they're going through so difficult is not only the death that we see and the suffering that Naomi is going through, but there is no mention of God anywhere in these verses. And isn't that how it goes when we are blinded by our suffering? Difficult to see how God could be in it, how God is working through it. It's difficult more than anything because God says nothing, does he? There is no word from the Lord, from a prophet, to walk right up to Naomi to comfort. God doesn't say anything. And it's interesting that the author of Ruth, most likely Samuel, makes no apology for God. Does he? He doesn't try to justify God's actions. He makes no apology to the reader. Look how bad it is, I know. There was no explanation, just heavy, heavy pain. Because God owes no one explanation. God 
owes no one his reasoning. God owes none of us in here this morning his excuses for what is going on in the world. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to question God why. God, why am I going through this? God, why am I facing many of these difficult circumstances that I'm going through or seeing other people go through many difficult and dark circumstances? It's not wrong to ask the why depending on what your motivation is. But when you ask the why, if that is where you are at or if that is what your heart is inclined to, you need to be very careful when you do. Because a lot of times when we ask why, we put God below us as though somehow we are the prosecutor, he is on trial, and we need an explanation from him. Who are we, O oh man, to question God? He's the potter. We are the clay. Clay doesn't talk. Clay doesn't fight against. Clay sits under the submission of God, of the potter. He owes no one an explanation. Who are we to think we can charge the king of kings? I mean, we do live in a time of rebellion and you know, I, mean, I do too. I mean, uh, I was with uh, some of the other pastors uh, this week in, in Oahu, and I got to drive for a little bit, and I was in a little bit rebellion mode, and I saw cops, like, hit the brakes. Don't want to deal with authority. We, we don't like authority. We rebel against the authority of the, the speed sign. Some go below it. Some go far above it, right? I'm the guy who goes above it, usually. And what we do is, when we question God and try to prosecute and charge him, we somehow think that we are on some moral high ground, that we have authority, that we are greater than him. He's the king of kings, though. He is the Lord of lords. No higher authority and position than his. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went out to sojourn. So it initially reads sojourn. So they're out traveling. They're not going to go. They're visiting. Maybe they're checking out some places to, to find sojourn. In the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So it says that they, they used to live in Bethlehem, but this family picks up Naomi, Malon, Chilion, Elimelech decided to move. Now, moving is horrible, especially with a family, right? Any, any of you like moving? Exactly, that's what I thought. And it's, 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 it's not a fun experience. I mean, especially I remember when the last time we moved, um, some people are like pack rats and some people aren't. My wife's not really a pack rat, but I'm like a trash rat, which means oh, we don't need this. Let's just throw this away. And she's like, you're throwing away our photo books. I don't care, right? Like, I just grab anything, throw it away. Simple, get rid of it all. I don't want to keep anything. And, and moving is just a horrible experience, especially when you have a family more often than not. And this is exactly what they're going through. But the move alone is far more difficult than what the reader, you and I, would, would just simply read in one verse. They sojourn and they move to Moab. okay. For an Israelite to leave Judah was almost like apostasy. It was almost like a betrayal. It was God's bride having an affair and whoring against the God of the universe. Th that is really what is happening here because not only are they leaving Israel, God's land of promise, but where are they going, Moab? Really, of all the places you are going to, you're going to Moab? Sure, Israel was doing what was right in their own eyes, the time of the judgment, all right, I get it. There was a famine in the land, but why would you go to Moab? Moab is cursed by God. Moab's very inception was birthed out of sin. In fact, the way Moab started, the way Moab happened was when uh, Abraham's nephew Lot has sex with his oldest daughter. And that is the inception of this wicked and perverse people. 
Moab was an enemy of Israel. Throughout history, Moab would oppress God's people. They mocked the altar of God and lamb sacrifice for the remission of sins. And in mocking that, they took their infant children, placed them on an altar, and charred them to worship false gods. Moab is scum of the earth. They were rebellious and prideful against God, but for Elimelech and Naomi, they were hungry. They needed food. There was famine in the land of promise, and the land flowing with milk and honey, there was none. Now we're told here where they're from, which is interesting. It's no coincidence. Verse 1, a man of Bethlehem in Judah. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. House of bread. It's interesting, looking up what Moab means, it was a bit of work trying to uncover and and see what it meant, but the meaning of, of Moab is, who is your father? Or in today's slang vernacular, who's your daddy, right? That's, that's what Moab is. And it's interesting. Who is the father of Moab? Lot. Sinful Lot. Naomi and her family could repent and have God but have nothing in Bethlehem. Or they can have everything but not be in the presence of God because you have to remember the presence of God was in a tabernacle there in the promised land where God's presence dwelled. And so to leave that was to leave the presence of God altogether so they could repent and have God but have nothing in the house of bread in Bethlehem. Or what they could do is they could have everything but not be in the presence of God. So what do they do? What happens? Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech. And his wife Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and they remained there. What started out as a sojourn ended up as the word for remain is dwell. They put their roots in. They had food there, so they got comfortable. Between having nothing but God or having everything but abandoning God, they moved to Moab. And for those who remained in Israel and knew of this family would have considered them apostate. You're going where? You're doing, all right, have a good one. Yeah. And it's kind of legit why they're leaving, right? I mean, there's no food. If you've got a family, you've got, you got to feed your family. What is your Moab? What is the place you run to for refuge in the midst of your rebellion? There might be a legitimate reason for you to do it. Doesn't make it right, still sinful, but a good reason, at least in your own eyes. Every person has done what was right in their own eyes. All of us have abandoned God. And before we get self-righteous on Elimelech and Naomi, where do you run to? How have you abandoned God? I'm saying even as a Christian. Because this reminds me of what Jesus said to the church uh, at Ephesus in Revelation 2.4. He says, but this I have against you. You have abandoned your first love. That even as Christians, blood bought purchased by Jesus, will leave the one who loved us first. And this reminds me of what Jesus said, Mark 8, 36, 
What does it profit a man to leave? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world, but to lose his own soul? If you do not have Jesus, but you have the world, you have nothing. And if you have nothing, but you have Jesus, you have everything. And this is why Naomi is being stripped of everything. Because if all you get in life is Jesus, you get all of life. Naomi losing her husband has been difficult, no doubt. But so far, where we're at in verse 2 and 3, at least she has her two sons. Verse 4, these, speaking of her sons, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years. So they're dwelling in Moab, a land they were once sojourning, checking out. They're there. Roots have gone down. Rebellion runs deep. Still doing what's right in their own eyes. But even though she lost her husband, at least she has her two sons. And they're married. Finally, things seem to be getting brighter a smile begins to appear on her face beneath the tears of agony. But how long does this last? Verse 5, And both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Is this karma? Is this chance? I mean, is this just a bad day? Is she just down on her luck? What the heck is going on with her life? I'd be very curious to know what her friends there in Moab told her. First her husband, now her two sons. Is there any harder loss than losing a child? I have a friend who, who is a pastor, and I remember when he lost his daughter, um, my wife and I were broken, and we were weeping for them. And it, we didn't lose our child. It was their child, and... and the pain and seeing what they went through and talking with them, it, it, there's no greater pain. She has to be asking, could it be any worse? Could this get any worse? Is it karma? Is it fate? Is it chance? One would have to wonder reading this. I think the cry of Naomi's soul would be the cry of what Job's soul cried out in Job 1.21. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I go. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though I don't know that Naomi is quite there yet for blessing the name of the Lord, but she would agree with the fact that the Lord is taken away. It's not luck. Listen, luck is not for Christians. Luck is for pagans. There is no luck when we believe and trust and have a relationship and know a sovereign God. And so when Christians say, good luck, and if you said it, I don't, I don't remember who says it and who doesn't. I don't keep tabs on people. I'm not like that. 
But it drives me crazy because when it comes to sovereignty, there is no room for chance. There is no room for karma. There is no room for luck. We don't believe in that. It's not yin and yang. We believe in a God who rules on a throne, who does not sit on a throne passively, kind of trying to pick up the pieces, trying to make sense of all of this. It's interesting, Naomi having a conversation with her daughters-in-law, look down at verse 13, the very last statement in verse 13, she says this, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter that, for me, that to me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. The hand of the Lord Did Satan kill them? Naomi is right that the hand of God is in this. She is wrong that God is against her. Now, I know this is a dark, heavy message. Uh, I would encourage you to come back next week as it begins, does get better. Does get brighter. She is wrong that God's hand has gone out against her, but she is absolutely right that God's hand is in it. This is not luck. This is not a roll of the dice. Naomi, in the midst of her pain, could not deny the sovereignty of God. She couldn't. In 1871... A fire broke out in the city of Chicago and absolutely ravaged this city. The Chicago fire, uh, for those of you, as you know, who, who know history about what happened there, 300 people died and it left 100,000 people homeless. Imagine, 100,000 people had nowhere to call home. They had lost everything. There was a man who was a lawyer in Chicago at the time during the Great Fire. His name was Horatio Spafford. Horatio was a lawyer who actually attended D.L. Moody's church in Chicago. He was there at the time of the fire. Horatio and his family witnessed the fire ruin many people's lives, businesses. It absolutely destroyed the economy and he, Horatio, being a lawyer, had some investments and he had put a lot of his wealth into properties of which he had just purchased and now they're all in ashes at the ground. Losing much, much, much of the wealth they had worked so hard for to build up. Leaving them with almost nothing. And it was only one year earlier in 1870 when Horatio's four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Their son had died. They had lost their investments. And so two years after the Chicago fire, Horatio put his wife, put them on a ship, his wife, his four daughters, to then sail to England for a break. Their vessel out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean was struck by another ship and sunk. And Horatio's four daughters drowned. His wife barely escaped with her life. And when she arrived in England, she sent a telegram to her husband which said, saved alone. So Horatio gets on a ship to go be with his wife, his mourning, broken wife, 
And as his ship floated over the waters where his four daughters' body sat at the ocean floor, lifeless, he penned this in his journal. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when waves like sea billows roar, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet through trials should come, this blessed assurance control. This blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and he has shed his own blood for my soul. How can it be well with this soul? How can it be well with your soul when the doctor calls you or your family member calls you like my dad called me a few months ago? Cancer. How can it be well with your soul when you lose someone you loved or when you miscarry? When you lose everything, when you lose the job and you don't know how you're going to pay the mortgage, when the divorce papers are surprisingly handed to you. God is good and God is just. There's no question about that. There is not an ounce, a fragment of injustice, of unrighteousness, or of wickedness within the, the being and of, of who God is. There is not any fraction or any inkling or hint of any perversion. And no doubt God is kind. And many of us know those attributes of God. But God is inflicts pain. God inflicts pain. Now, I wouldn't make a statement like that without backing it up with some verses because many are, many who've been in church for years and who've studied the scriptures have not even realized this to be a character of God. More often than not, we like to censor that part of God out of our life because it's like, hey, by the way, God inflicts pain. You want to follow him? You want to believe in him? Write these down, and there's, I had more. I, we don't have time to go there, but, but write these down, um, and you can look them up later. Lamentations 3.8. It is, not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Isaiah 45.7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Psalm 135.6 Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all deeps. Do you see from the scriptures, not because I'm telling you from the scriptures that nothing happens outside the hands of a sovereign God. Nothing happens outside of the hands of a God who is completely and totally in control of all things. Another one, Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So faith is granted from God to us. Faith is a gift from God given to us, granted here for the sake of Christ, for his glory, that we would not only respond to him in belief, but that we would also suffer for his sake. That God grants us faith, but God grants us 
suffering for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. Suffering is from God's hand. Suffering is given to us by God um, and even in, I know we, let's back into Ruth now, even in Ruth 1.13, I want you to see this, what Naomi says, the end of it again. Understanding all of these things. No, my daughters, it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And in the greatest news of all creation, if you're still wrestling with this, just submit to the scriptures and let the scriptures renew your mind. But the greatest example is the crucifixion. Where you have people who were once waving palm branches at the Messiah now in Herod's court, screaming out, crucify him, we would rather have Barabbas than Jesus. And Roman soldiers bound him, took him, crucified him, and Christ died. But God did that. God appointed that. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. From the hand of God, Jesus was crucified. God pours out his wrath upon his own son. From the hand of God, there is suffering. And isn't it interesting that Jesus, as he is in the garden of Gethsemane, weeping and wailing, he says, Father, would you remove this cup from me? The cup of suffering and of God's wrath and judgment upon him was from the Father. Since suffering is from the hand of God and it is given to us by God and nothing out ha happens outside of his sovereign control and reign, this means that no one dies early. No one dies early. It means that your pain and your suffering is not pointless. It means that, that you are not an accident. Now, no doubt people sin. Horrible things happen because of man's wickedness, as we know from Ruth and the other, all the scriptures and even our own lives. And man, hear me out, is held 100% responsible for his actions before God. But God never has to improvise picking up the pieces. And sometimes we think, yeah, but Satan, well, Satan is also under the rule of a sovereign God, and Satan is on a leash. Satan is not equally sovereign with God. It's not like God's got 50% sovereignty. Satan has 50% sovereignty, and there is war being waged. Satan is under the authority of God, and he only has tools in his hands to inflict the souls on this planet. So even if the church burns down, which would be terrible, and that would not be good, I'm not blaming Satan. Sometimes we give Satan more glory than, is, than he is due. I mean, is God not sovereignly, actively involved with his creation? He doesn't have to improvise. And even as we see Naomi and Elimelech leaving the promised land, leaving from God, abandoning his presence, husband dies, children tragically die, often we think Satan is more powerful than he really is. But this is God. This is the way he works. This is a part of his character and nature. And God is sovereign even when things do get worse. Which means there is pain, there is purpose in your pain. And you want this to be true and you know this to be true in your soul because the Spirit is bearing witness the truth of the Scriptures to you about this. 
and you realize you can relax a little. Your heart's cry can be when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Whatever my lot, whatever your lot. And Naomi's lot was a rough one. Ten years of this. But here's the thing. Though we don't read of God in these verses, though God says nothing, God is working. And right now, whatever you're in or whatever you're going through or whatever people you know, you might not be able to see God. Maybe you haven't experienced God the way that you had thought you would experience, but you can know that he is sovereign. Romans 8.28 tells us that he is working all things together for the good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. Did you realize that all things includes evil? wickedness, sin, that God intends evil for his purposes. Again, he's not trying to, he didn't walk away from you and say, man, I can't believe, come back and say, what did you do? I don't know what to do with this mess anymore. Because what I love about the story of Ruth is that while they are in the midst of their disobedience, while they are doing what is right in their own eyes, while they are going with everyone else, God is calling to call them out as his remnant people because while we are unfaithful, while they are being unfaithful, God always remains faithful towards us. This is the gospel. That while we are wicked, God is unfailingly good to us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were trying to go to church and be holy and play the religious game while we thought nothing of him, wanted nothing to do with him, spat upon him, or ignored him altogether. And out of this, this is why, if, if, I mean, if you're visiting and you're like here on vacation for a week, sorry, um, but not. Um, as we read through Ruth and as you do, out of this, God will do through Naomi more than she could ever imagine. With this being true, I can't, believe the junk that is shared from pastors when they stand up and tell their people and their church, you know why you're suffering? Because you don't have enough faith. Are you kidding me? Seriously, garbage. Junk. If you've been told that, you've been lied to. If you've been told that God wants you to have sunshine all the days of your life and bless you with material, I don't read that in this book anywhere, do you? Naomi among Job and oh, Paul beheaded. Our Savior was crucified. What makes us think this life is going to be easy? So what I want you to know and to understand and to believe is that when you are in the midst of your pain, many times, more often than not, it is appointed by God to you. Like Naomi, God inflicted pain upon her to bring her to himself, and that is what God does with us. He pulls the rug out from under us, exposing the foundation of which we have built our life upon, only then to bring us to himself. This is what our God does.
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roar, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Oh God, would you teach us this? Heavenly Father, would you reveal to us through Ruth, through her life, through her pain and her suffering, that as we are in this together as a church, that it's okay to be going through difficult times, that there is no shame in it at all. In fact, that we should use this as an opportunity to love and to serve and to be with one another, reminding us of the sovereignty of God, reminding us, God, that your hand is in all things. That the earth is yours and the fullness of it is yours. And so, Lord, would you help me and would you help us to really believe this about you? Would you crush our small views of you, the things you would like to censor out of you, and believe these things to be true and to prepare us for when we go through suffering? And if you are in here this morning and you did not know Jesus, but you've heard these truths from the scriptures. God has illuminated through the Holy Spirit and shown you Jesus as good and as a savior and that you can come to him and it might get worse. Repent. Don't come to Jesus for stuff. Don't come to him for blessing. Come and run to him for forgiveness and worship him as the God of this universe. And rejoice in the fact that he has redeemed our souls. Repent and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And may we who are suffering show Jesus that no matter what we lose in this world, that if we have you, we get all of life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. We hope that Jesus is doing a work in your life from the message that you just heard. We would love to hear how you were impacted and what was impressed on your heart. Share your story by emailing connect at shorebreakchurch.com. And if you don't know Jesus as God, Lord and Savior, or you have more questions, send us an email to info at shorebreakchurch.com so we can get you dialed in with a free Bible and resources for your new relationship with Jesus.